I thank Him for the opportunity to get to preach once again. And uh, If you would turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, far left of your Bibles, the second book. But as I've been some other places and I've got to... Sometimes you just kind of sit back and watch. Sit back and watch the churches you're in and how people react to things and how sometimes people worship a little differently than we do and how sometimes uh, people preach a little different. And A lot of times I see some things that concern me. Especially as you watch on, if you watch TV preaching at all and TV services, it'll concern you a lot. And I, God has made it, made it known to me. I, I began to see that we have a problem with how we see God. Last week I preached about God's holiness. And God's holiness is one of His attributes. Uh, it could actually be argued that it's His most important attribute because it's holy, holy, holy. Thrice uh, emphasized. And in the Hebrew, that's signifying importance. But as we look at God's attributes, a lot of times, especially in modern churches, we, like, we see churches that will emphasize one attribute over another. Or they might have the ones they like that they pick and choose, and the ones they don't like, they throw away. And then you have another group that will come in right behind them and see what they're doing, and they'll run and pick up all these, and they'll only preach that just to combat what they're doing, but they'll leave off the other side entirely as well. But in order for us to grow as Christians, and in order for lost people to come to know the Lord, we have to present God as God is seen in the Scriptures. We can't just paint God as a picture of all love, and He's not worried about your sin, and you can just do whatever you want to, and He's going to bend down and stoop and wipe your feet. It don't matter what kind of filth and sin you're living in. But we don't preach God's justice, that He is the righteous judge. But then we can't come over here and preach that God is the righteous judge and show that He's ready to destroy the whole world and never tell somebody about His love or do it in a way that doesn't show their love. It has to come together because our God is a God of balance. That was one of the first things that God showed me when I was saved that He just began to start blowing my mind with is His beautiful, wonderful, perfect balance in all that He is. There's no one else balanced like God is. But in our little area around here, in the Bible Belt, in the South, where Everybody goes to church. Most people are saved. Everybody reads their Bible. And we talk about God's justice. We talk about God's love. We talk about His mercy. We talk about His grace. We talk about how He has power. But a lot of times, I notice that we seem to leave off the fact that God is sovereign. That seems to be something that escapes our mind that we don't realize. So tonight I want to talk just for a moment about God's sovereignty. Just pray for me as, as I preach this. Fence would stand for the reading of God's Word in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And He said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I just come before you tonight, God, and I pray that you would help me, God, that you would give me the words to speak, God, that I might be able to lift up your name to show just something about you, God, that maybe would bless someone that would help us, God, help us to not have any misconceptions about you and your character, God, but to see you as you are revealed to us in your holy word, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. So in order for us to start to grasp God's sovereignty, there's another attribute of God that we have to understand. Theologians a lot of times call this the aseity of God. God's aseity means that He is self-existent. Right, that's exactly what we see right here in Exodus chapter 3. Anybody who's been with me preaching much or listened to my lessons and uh, teaching anything I do will notice that I bring up Exodus chapter 3 right here a lot because I think it's one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Whenever Moses is exiled for killing an Egyptian taskmaster and he's drove away and he goes into the Midianite wilderness, he's out there for 40 years and he's watching his father-in-law's sheep and one day as he's walking he sees a burning bush, a bush that's on fire but it's not consumed. And so... Seeing this, he's astonished and he turns aside to see what's going on with this bush. And as he does, it says the Lord speaks to Moses from this bush. He calls out his name twice. A term of intimacy. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. So God tells him, take off your shoes, Moses. Take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses takes off his sandals And God proceeds to go on and tell Moses about how He's going to call him to deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage of Pharaoh, out of the land of Egypt. And Moses says to him, Well, whenever they ask me, the one who sent you, what's his name? What do I tell them? You see, throughout the book of Genesis before this, there are some times where they refer to God as the Lord. And there are times where they call Him God. They give Him names like Elohim, which means the Creator God. They give Him names like El Shaddai, which means the Almighty God. They give Him names like El Roy, which is the God who sees me. But then, whenever God gives His own name to Moses, when He speaks to Moses and says, This is who I am, He says, I am that I am. That's where we get God's name Jehovah, or Yahweh, Yehovah in the Hebrew. And God's name tells us so much about Him. You see, in Psalms 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. When He says, I am that I am, He's saying that I created everything that there is from nothing. Our minds can't comprehend nothing. When you think back to before these modern times we have, before cell phones, before cars, before planes and trains, before horse carriages, all the way back before even Adam, before the earth, before the creation, before anything, before space, before time, before matter, before anything, there was nothing. But God was there. 
Even whenever you try to think of nothing, if I try to think of nothing, I think of a, a blank space. I think of air. But air is something. God was there when there was nothing. God existing outside of time. Can you not see it? When He said, let there be light, His voice came forth and that was the first sound that ever echoed into the void of nothing. And as it echoed forth, it began to create. As light sprung forth from the darkness, as something came forth from nothing, because the eternal, self-existent One said, let there be. As His voice went forth, it began to create space. As he began to create the space, he began to fill it with matter as he looked forth and he commanded by his words for the stars to come into being. As he threw his voice out across the cosmos, the galaxies came into being. As we can go and look at the Hubble telescope today, or you can go to a planetarium, or we went to the creation museum, and you can see the vast wonders of God's creation. All this came forth from a word, and it came forth from God. As we see water that we have, He bound up the water and He told it where to go after He created it. And He held it back and it would not cross His boundaries. As He lifted up the mountains, they stood in place where He told them to. As He brought the valleys down low, they held their place where He commanded. And as He made the clouds, He told them to hold water and they obeyed His command. As He let dirt come into being as He covered the earth with it. His trees come up forth from it as He created color, as He created everything that we know, and as even He let the beautiful flowers begin to bloom. And then I think about how it says that He made the creatures within the sea that began to live. He created the fish. And then I think about how He made the birds and He gave them feathers and He gave them wings so that they could fly and He breathed life into them so that they could live. And I think about how He took that dirt that He had and He began to form it and He began to create it. And as He stooped down, He breathed the breath of life into its nostrils and man became a living soul. And as man opened his eyes and he beheld his perfect creator, he began to think, he began to understand, he began to reason, and he began to worship his God. And you see, every single thing that there is is dependent upon God. But God is not dependent upon anything. God is outside of it all, and he's greater than it all. There was not a bigger God than God that had to create Him so that He could come into being. But He was there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity. In perfect love, in perfect harmony, the Father bringing glory to the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bringing glory to the Father and the Son, and the Son giving glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit. In their triune Perfect unity. And they were perfectly satisfied. God did not need to create all this. You see, if God would have been dependent upon all this, it would have had to have been in eternity as well. But He did not create all of this because He needed to. But for the abundance of the overflow of His love and for His glory to be manifested, He created everything that we know. This is what God means when He says, I am 
that I am. And so now that we can see God's aseity and that He is the great I am, we can begin to understand something about His sovereignty. You see, because He is the I am, He does as He wills and as He pleases, and He is bound by nothing. He operates according to His good pleasure. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, He has declared the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says that He has predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Ephesians 1 verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to the good pleasure that He has purposed in Himself. Everything God has decided to do in His sovereignty, He has done it by the pleasure of His good will because it pleased Him to do so. You see, uh, and He also has done it according to His counsel. You think in eternity's past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect agreement according to the good pleasure of their will, have decided what they would do with the creation that God has made. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, According to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. And then in Romans 11 verse 33 through 36, Paul, thinking about these glorious things, says, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, His ways past finding out, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that shall be recompensed again unto Him? For of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. God is sovereign over His creation because He is the Creator. And a lot of times... We get this twisted. A lot of times if we're not careful, even as Christians, we begin to think that we are the sovereign ones. We begin to think that we are the ones who have power. We begin to act like we're God. And that God should be doing what our will is. To which God could say, okay, I'll take a step aside and you can rule it all for a day. And it would all crumble within a moment. A lot of times we think that others' salvation is dependent upon us. We brag and act like somebody was saved because of us and what we did, because of our great obedience. And at the same time, we act like someone is going to go to hell because I didn't do something that I was supposed to do. But you see, you can't save anyone yourself. I don't have that kind of power. Brother Bobby doesn't have that kind of power. Josh doesn't have that kind of power. That power belongs to one. Ecclesiastes 8 verses 8 says that there is no man that has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither has he power on the day of death. Psalms 89 verse 48 says, What man 
is he that liveth and shall not see death. Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? We see that man doesn't have that kind of power. But only God has that power. Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Romans 13 verse 1 says, There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Psalm 62 verse 11 says, God has spoken once, yea, twice I have heard this, that the power belongeth unto God. We can see that there is none who can save but one. There's many verses that I have listed here. I'm not even going to read them all because of time. But salvation is of the Lord. Psalms 37 verse 39 says, The salvation of the righteous, that's me and you if you're saved, the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. The only one who has the power to save is the Savior. Hebrews 7 verse 25, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, saying he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And as you ponder this, as you think about the sovereignty of God, I want you to think about God being the ancient of days, being the limitless, the eternal, the all-knowing, the ever-present, the all-powerful, timeless one. That He stands outside of time. This is hard for me to understand. This is hard for me to wrap my mind around. But there are no bounds of time upon God. He stands outside of it. He sees the first at the same time as He sees the last. And He's right now here with us. He's with us in the future. And He's with us in the past. All at the same time. He's not in time like we are. But He stands outside of it. With the Lord, the future is present. The past is now. And this moment that we are in is saturated with His eternal presence. In my past, He is there guiding me through it all. In my future, He is there waiting for me. And right now, with each and every fleeting moment, the timeless one is with me. You can never exist in a moment that He is not. Have you ever thought about that? That He's there waiting for you tomorrow in your struggles, in your problems, and what you're going to face, He's already there. And we can look back and see easily that He's been with us through it all. And we can know by the promises of the past that He is with us right now. I think of God in eternity's future standing there at the consummation of all things looking out as He sees His perfect creation. After all things are wrapped up after the devil's been cast into the lake of fire and everybody whose name was not written down in the Lamb's book of life, after the tribulation, after everything has come to pass and we're standing there with him, he looks out at his creation and he sees the new heavens and the new earth. He sees the majestic works of his hand. He sees the freedom from sin. He sees the death of death. He sees the sadness and sorrows wiped away. And what he beholds is absolute beauty. And you know what else he sees? 
He sees me standing there with him. Glorified. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. He's standing there now and he sees me as I shall be. He sees me there perfect in his sight. He has made me holy in his mind and his heart. He knew this from before the beginning. He foreknew me and intimately loved me in eternity's past. It says that He has declared the end from the beginning. The Lord in His grace loved me and chose me. And if you're saved, He loved you and He chose you before the foundations of this earth. Through all the efforts of men, through my family, my friends, preachers, no matter how well that they preached, no matter how persuasive that they were, they were never able to save me. It took the Savior to save me. I was born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No matter how grand the will of well-meaning men is, no matter how pure their intentions, no matter what they do, it was not by their will, but by God's. And on the other hand, no matter how bad preaching may have been, no matter how bad doctrine may have been, no matter how much someone may have tried to lead me astray and someone may have failed and not been obedient, it cannot stop or hinder what God had planned to do with our lives. Have you ever thought about what Jesus had to face to deliver us? Have you ever considered the things that Jesus had to go through to save us? I want to tell you that no obstacle could stop our Lord. All the sin in my life, all the lust, all the drugs, the drink, the misconceptions, the confusion, the depression, the lies, the guilt, the demons, this world, the devil, even my own hell-bent self could not have stopped Almighty God and it did not stand in His way from saving me, His child. You think about it. Think about what He overcame. I want you to think about the distance that He traveled to save us. He did not just travel miles. He did not just travel across the country. He did not just travel across the seas or the world. He did not just travel from the moon and back. He did not just travel across galaxies, but He crossed the great chasm, the distance from heaven to earth to come to rescue us. There was no height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor width that could ever stop His love for us. And I want you to think of not just the distance, but the difficulty that He faced. The Bible tells us that He faced every difficulty, every trial, every temptation known to man. And every single one of them, He looked dead in the eyes and they were no match for our Savior. I think about Him, the distance between Him being God and us being man, but how He came and wrapped Himself in the flesh, how He humbled Himself to be in the, made, in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the God-man. What a difficulty overcome that in itself was. And as He took upon Himself this human nature, 
He faced all the weakness. He faced weariness. He faced hunger, thirst, sorrows, pain. The very blood that ran through His veins was shed. The Creator looked through eyes that shed tears for His creation. But no difficulties were too great for Him to rescue us in His great love. And not just distance, not just difficulty, but I want you to think of the enemies that He faced to save us. I think of the enemies who stood up in a line as long as has ever been, who stood in the way of my deliverance, who Jesus stood up and He cut them down one by one, laying them up in a heap as He was coming for me. From the smallest of them and to the greatest of them, He removed every single obstacle. As my great sin stood in the way, He nailed it to His cross. He bore it in His own body. As the curse had laid a hold of me, He took that curse upon the tree. He condemned sin in His flesh. And He plunged headlong into one of my greatest enemies, hell. He plunged headlong into the billows and waves of God's wrath to face it for me. And that final enemy, death. (laughs) Can't you see on that Sunday morning Can't you see on that Sunday morning at the tomb as death fled away? As death went and he scurried down to the dark corners of the earth where Satan walked to and fro like a lion seeking whom he could devour. And whenever he gets there, he walks up upon a party. The old devil and his demons, they had been partying for at least the past three days because they had defeated their enemy. They had secured the death of mankind and they had defeated Jesus. Oh, they laughed as they saw the King of glory cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They shouted with glee when they saw Him bow His wounded head and give up the ghost. They followed close behind as they saw Him laid down in that tomb. And as the stone was rolled over the grave, they said, Evil has overcome. Love Himself has been succumbed to hate and life Himself was slain. They were hooping and hollering and dancing. They were laughing and recalling their victory. And that's when death walked up in the midst of them. His eyes wide, trembling and shaking, with bruise marks upon his neck. Death lifted up his raspy voice to the devil. I hate to interrupt the party, but I've got some bad news. I've got some bad, bad news and you're not going to like this. Well, the devil, being so obsessed with his party, looked at death and said, well, what is it? Death stands there, stuttering and shaking, just trying to find the words to say. And the devil says, well, go ahead, spit it out. And death says, well, you see, today was the third day, and I was going to go in the tomb just like you told me to. I was going to go finish the job just like you told me to. And right as I went to pass through the stone, that stone was lifted up. That stone was rolled away. I was astonished. As I lifted my eyes, He was standing there, the Holy One, with His radiance and the light of His glory shining forth through the doorway. I didn't know what to do. And as He stepped forth, I felt power surge from Him. I was frightened, so I got my stinger ready. And you know, one by one, I've stung every man. And each and every one of them was killed by my vicious sting. But as I drove my stinger into Him... I've never felt so much power. 
Oh, the power. He took the full force of my sting. And then He laid hold of me. And He took my stinger. And He ripped it right out. Never before have I encountered anyone like this. And after He took my stinger, He grabbed me and He cast me upon the ground. And as I lied there in the dirt, He took His foot just like Joshua and placed it upon my neck. As He said, O death, you have no dominion over me, for I am that I am. Get up and you go tell the devil that I'm coming for him. Tell him that I'm your new master and that he no longer has power over you. All power and authority has been given to me and all enemies shall be under my feet. Before death could even finish giving his report to the devil, they saw him as they turned around and he was standing there. The bright, the glorious, the holy one, Jesus Christ. And as he trembled, In His presence, they began to fall. And as He walked towards that old serpent, with His eyes looking like a blazing flame, death bowed down His knee to His new master. And Satan cries, How? How could it be? I saw you whipped. I saw you bleed. You were hanging upon the cross. I saw them run that spear through your side. And I was there when you gave up the ghost. But just as was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, Jesus took that old serpent by the neck and He threw him down upon the ground. And with that same hill that the serpent struck, He took and He crushed His head. And as He crushed His head, He bent down and He took the keys to death and hell and He placed them upon His side. Every single enemy, no matter the distance, no matter the difficulty, no matter the obstacle, No matter the enemies that stood between me and salvation, between Christ and me, between God and me, His child, have been defeated by the man Christ Jesus. (laughs) He is entirely in control of all things. To say that God is sovereign is not just to merely say that He's stronger than everyone else, although that is true but rather to call Him sovereign is to ascribe to Him a rule and an authority that transcends space and time and leaves nothing outside of His scope. There is nothing out of the grasp of God. The security of your future is in His hand. The salvation of your loved ones is in His hand. Your financial situation is in His hand. Your health issues are in His hands. Your wayward child is in His hands. Your job in His hands. Your addiction is in His hands. And your affliction is in His sovereign hands. There is nothing out of His control. But as we see God in His sovereignty, this does not exempt us from having responsibility. God has given us the responsibility to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God doesn't save people apart from the gospel. In Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, How then shall they call upon Him whom they have not believed? How then shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? 
As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. God has saved us and He sent us. And so our responsibility is to go and to share the gospel. He's given us a commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatever, whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. The Bible tells us that we have a responsibility and that we will give an account. It says that in Romans 14 verse 2, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. I don't know exactly what all that means. But I know one day we're going to have to give an account of every idle word that we've said, the opportunities I believe that we've had and failed to seize, and things that God has asked us to do that we didn't, and things that He's told us not to do that we did do. And we know that all of our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I don't know how all that works together. But I do know there's going to be some things that we wish we would have done and some things that we didn't do or did do that we wish we wouldn't have done. But through all of it, we can know that God is sovereign and that He is working. And some people have a hard time of seeing how this works together, how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility both exist. Like a hyper-Calvinist would say, well, God's already decided who all is going to be saved before the beginning, so there's no need for us to even go and preach. We can just sit here on the couch and eat potato chips because they're going to be saved if God's foreordained them to be saved. And then we have this other group who thinks that if they don't go and reach people, that there are going to be a bunch of people in hell that didn't make it to heaven just because of them. But God, the sovereign God, knows all His, and all His are going to be saved. I don't believe there will be one in hell that didn't reject Jesus Christ. So whenever we see these two things come together, I think C.H. Spurgeon maybe hit the nail on the head the best that I've ever seen. He was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with one another. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have gave my mind to believe in them both. If then I find it taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, well then that is true. And if I find in another part of Scripture that a man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And the only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths could ever contradict one another. If any man be saved, all honor is to be given to Christ. But if any man be lost, all the blame is to be laid upon himself you will find all true theology summed up in these two short sentences. Salvation is of the grace of God, but damnation is all of the will of man. So what does this mean to us? What does us seeing God's sovereignty mean to us in our day-to-day lives? Well, for one, we can see that it's never too late for anyone to be saved. 
No matter how bad a shape they're in, no matter what their life looks like, there's some people in my life that I've looked at and thought, well, they'll never be saved. I know each and every one of us have those in our lives. But with God the Sovereign Lord, there's nothing impossible for Him. If you've done all you can and all hope seems lost, there's nothing too difficult for Him. His hand is not short to save. Neither is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. My cousin Colby, he's not here tonight, but I don't think he would care if I told you this. For over two years, I've had a burden for him. And I've prayed and prayed and prayed for him. And I shared the gospel with him, I kid you not, probably 30 times. Each time being probably more than an hour. And no matter how I talked to him, no matter how I tried to show him, no matter how many times I explained it, it never clicked to him. I could sit there and just look at him and it was like it was just going in one ear and out the other. And I would go and cry out to God, I don't understand God. I'm, I'm doing my part. What's going on here? What do I need to say that I'm not saying? What do I need to do that I'm not doing? If you'll just show me, I'll do it. And there was one morning I drove up where I like to pray every morning. And I got absolutely aggravated. I got even ill with God. And I said, Lord, I don't understand. What do I need to do? And God said, open your Bible. And I... The day before, I had threw a piece of paper in my Bible and closed it at church. This was on a Monday morning. And I opened my Bible right up to where I threw that piece of paper in. And it said, This battle is the Lord's. And I bowed my head. It was like the Holy Spirit spoke to me. You can't save Him. Turn it over to me. This battle is not yours. It's mine. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And I said, God, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I trust you. Save him. And it wasn't two weeks. And he came and met me where I was at work. And he came and he was crying. He said, man, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, what is it? He said, I feel like I'm lost. And we went out on the back porch and I got to talk to him and share the gospel. And all this time it was different. This time it was different because I saw his eyes open up. I saw him start to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ was. And I saw him as he bowed his head and prayed. And I prayed, God, I pray that you'd save him. And as I did, I felt the Holy Spirit light down upon that place. And he's been different ever since. That was not me. That was not by the will of man. But it was the sovereign Lord who saved him. So there may be someone in your life, one of your loved ones, your mom, your dad, your children, your spouse, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, that you don't know. And it just seems like there's no way that they can be saved. Trust the sovereign Lord and put them in His hand and trust that He will save them and He will do everything according to the good pleasure of His will. And my Bible tells me that He takes pleasure in people who turn from their wicked ways and live. Number two, it gives us freedom to share the gospel. Knowing God's sovereignty, we can begin to share with boldness knowing that these results are not in our hands. No longer do we have to feel like, well, I can't do good enough. And whenever it is a success and we do get to see that harvest reaped, we know that it is not by the hands of man, 
We just reap, we sow, we water, but God's the one who gives the increase. And all glory belongs to Him. Number three, it gives us assurance to know that God is sovereign. If you're saved, it's not because of anything you did. It's not because of any prayer that you prayed. And it's not dependent upon anything that you do. But it's dependent upon what He has done. Whenever we look to Him to see what He has done, you know what He said? It is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. If you love God, it's because God first loved you. If there's any true love in your heart for God Almighty, it is because first He looked upon you and He cast His gazing eye of love upon you. And if you're saved, it's by grace through faith, a gift of God. Number four, failure isn't final. I know that every single one of us have had those moments in our lives where we've failed in sharing the gospel. We've had those opportunities that we've missed. But if you've missed an opportunity, you have to realize some things. Uh, that disobedience is indeed a sin and we must repent from that and turn and proceed to do what is right in the future. And John, 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whenever we recognize we have been disobedient, we haven't took that opportunity that God gave us, we come, we confess to Him what we have done, and we repent of it, and we go forward. You don't have to despair. You can get over it. You can move on. And we can trust that God is going to save all the people that are His. If the distance and the difficulty and the devil and death is hell itself couldn't stop the Savior from saving His little lamb, I promise you that a mistake you make is not going to stop Him either. First John, or John 6, 37 and 39 says, All that the Father has given me shall come to me. Every single one that the Father has given Jesus is going to come to Him. And Him that cometh to me I'll in no wise cast out. This is the Father's will which has sent me, that all of which He has given me, that I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. We see that lastly, number five, He will save you. The sovereign Lord, seeing Him in His sovereignty, we can know that He has made a promise. The one who is outside of time, space, matter, uh, the creator of all things, the great timeless one, the conqueror of all enemies, has promised some things. And what He has promised, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says to you tonight, if you're not saved, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you'll come and you will bow yourself down before His feet and you'll call upon Him, He's not going to say, get away, I don't want you. He's not going to take and cast you out. If you've been saved and He holds you in His arms, He is not going to then get to the judgment day and say, depart from me for I never knew you. Because He does know you if you're His and you are saved. 
God has promised that whosoever will believe in Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. Titus 1-2 says, In the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie has promised before the world began. That's a promise that He made before He said, Let there be light. And Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, that by two immutable things, which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge and laid hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. God has promised that if you will come to Him, if you will believe on His Son, if you will call upon His name, that you will be saved. And He has made that promise upon His very own name. The I am that I am, Jehovah God, could think of nothing greater that He could swear an oath upon. So He swore an oath upon Himself. And I promise you that the Almighty God will not break a promise that He has made. He is bound by nothing, yet He saw fit to bind Himself to the promises that He has given to us. Not because it was begrudging to Him and He thought He just had to, but because it pleased Him to do so. And if you don't know Him and you'll come call upon Him tonight, He will save you. Heavenly Father, we just come before You tonight, God. We thank You for being so good to us. We thank You for Your kindness. We thank You for Your power, God. We thank You for Your sovereignty. We thank You for Your mercy and we thank You for Your love. And just as the seraphims flew around Your throne, God, we just want to pray to You that You are holy, holy, holy. I pray that You would go with each and every one of us throughout the rest of our weeks, God. Help us to be responsible and to share your word as you would have us to, and to trust you with everything that will take place from it, God. We know that your word will not return to you void. And I know, God, that you work all things for the good of those who believe in you, God. Whether it be sickness, whether it be temptations, whether it be trials, whatever we may face in this life, God, we can know that you are working it all for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And I just thank you so much, God, that all the evil that transpired in my life, God, that the devil meant it for evil, but that you meant it for good, God. We love you. We thank you. I pray that you go with us throughout this week, God. And if there's any lost here tonight, God, I pray that they would come find one of us, God. Come find somebody and talk to us and get to know you tonight, Lord, before it's too late. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.